This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. I think it's fair to say that on this program, we like to look back in order to look forward. Our feeling is that to know what's going on now and try and guess what might happen in the future, you really need to have an idea of what has happened in the past. And in a very confusing metaphor for the above, we have the fact that it's now circulating in social media that George Jetson was recently born, apparently on July 31st, 2022. This apparently is based on looking back from one of the cartoon episodes in the year 2062 when George was celebrating his 40th. We find this sort of amusing, but have decided to not spend a lot of time researching it. Though this does remind me of a comedian I saw several decades back who took to the stage with a guitar and started strumming those power chords of dun-dun-dun-dun, dun-dun-dun-dun, and then started to sing. Meet George Jetson, to which he added his boy Leroy, and paused as someone in the audience, on cue, of course, shouted out, Elroy. Comedian then stopped strumming, looked at the audience, and said, Well, I guess we know who watches the Jetsons. His boy Elroy. I think we'll ease into today's program with further literary notes. Among the many magazine subscriptions that go into this program is one from The New Yorker. On the January 25th issue, they had a little item on what to stream that referred readers to The Harder They Fall, a 1957 movie featuring Humphrey Bogart. It was, in fact, Bogie's last cinematic role. Said the magazine, the movie directed by Mark Robson and based on a novel by Bud Schulberg packs the ambient violence of a sports world and a media scene that are infested with gangsters. It's an expose not just of boxing, but of the American way of business. Anyway, following the prompt, uh, I did stream this and took a look at it. Not so much because I'm a Bogey fan, although I do enjoy his work, but that I'm more of a Schulberg fan. After all, it is Bud Schulberg who wrote the screenplay for On the Waterfront and A Face in the Crowd. He won an Academy Award for the screenplay for On the Waterfront and probably should have won one for A Face in the Crowd. Bud Schulberg was the son of a successful Hollywood producer, and that gave him an insider's viewpoint on the true happenings of Hollywood, which was reflected in much of his writing. He'd written a book back in 1941 titled What Makes Sammy Run that, to this day, causes waves down in Hollywood. The movie allowed the public to see the harshness of Hollywood's stardom via the primary character Sammy Glick's rise to power in a major Hollywood film studio. The novel was criticized by some as being self-directed and anti-Semitic. Curiously, Schulberg was then a member of the Communist Party USA, but quit in protest after he was ordered by high-ranking party members to change the novel. Anyway, Schulberg certainly had an interesting personal life. He was married four times. And I got to say, if you have not seen uh, any of the movies mentioned above, On the Waterfront, A Face in the Crowd, or in this case, 
the harder they fall. Well, there are three films you certainly should consider checking out. After watching The Harder They Fall, I also pulled up uh, On the Waterfront and watched it again. Pretty strong performances from Marlon Brando, Carl Malden, Rod Steiger, and Lee J. Cobb. But I think my personal favorite of the trio is still A Face in the Crowd. I came away from it concluding that Andy Griffith was a spectacularly good actor. From A Face in the Crowd, you can see just how good he is and understand that he is so good that you really think that he's Andy Taylor, living in Mayberry. But no, he was acting. And while scrolling around looking for things to watch, I stumbled upon a, a documentary taking a look at the life of Graham Greene. And boy, is there a Hollywood connection there too. It almost seems as though every damn thing that Graham Greene wrote got turned into a movie. Some years ago, we talked about at least one of those movies, in this case, The Quiet American. I'm referring to the 2002 remake starring Michael Caine and Brendan Fraser, which was actually true to the 1954 novel. Hollywood got a hold of that book in the 50s and made a movie out of it, but the CIA decided that they didn't like the way it was going, being that it had a very anti-American slant and warned the public that a fiasco could ensue in the Republic of Vietnam if the U.S. followed the blueprint that had been set out by the French. And while all that turned out to be spot on, uh, moviegoers didn't learn anything about that because the movie with Audie Murphy took the position that whatever the U.S. may do in Vietnam is because, well, we just doggone have to do it. Green was pretty incensed by what they did to that original film, just as Bud Schulberg was pretty mad at the Communist Party for trying to have him change what he wrote. But sadly, there wasn't a whole lot Graham Greene could do about it back in the 1950s. And sadly, he did not live long enough to see the remake, which, which accurately portrayed what takes place in the book and its perspectives. And curiously, from this documentary, I learned that Graham Greene had been in British intelligence and had worked under the legendary Soviet mole Kim Philby. I know in previous programs we talked about what is now known as the Cambridge Five. And we've also talked about the fact that back in the 50s when two of these spies slipped out of America and went back to the Soviet Union, suspicion immediately fell upon Kim Philby, a close associate of them. And, dear listener, if you find yourself with some time to kill, you may want to pull up on YouTube the press interview with Kim Philby as they descended upon him to ask about, like, well, was there a third man here? since it seemed pretty clear in intelligence circles that it wasn't just Burgess and McLean that were up to mischief in Washington. And you get to watch Kim Philby look at the cameras and say, and answer the question, well, were you the third man? No. But what do you know? He was the third man and was probably the basis for the title character in Graham Greene's novel, which is another pretty epic 1950s movie you may want to check out, dear listener. Joseph Cotton is very good, and Orson Welles is, well, Orson Welles at near the top of his game. And I think I need to ask, Mr. McMillan, did we not talk about Our Man in Havana at some point in this program? I believe we did. Yeah. It's another Graham Greene novel they made into a great movie with Alec Guinness. Wasn't Graham Greene on Bonanza, too? You're thinking of Lorne Greene. Oh. Yeah, another great 50s black-and-white film to check out. Alec Guinness is excellent. Noel Coward portraying uh, the role of a, a British spy master who enlists 
Alec Guinness to spy for him in Havana, prompting the vacuum cleaner salesman to make up reports about top-secret installations up in the hills of Cuba based upon the diagrams of his vacuum cleaners. Anyway, Guinness is good, Coward's good, and Ernie Kovacs, playing the corrupt police chief in Havana, is also very good. Geez, I'm feeling like Leonard Moulton. But if we have whetted your appetite enough to pick up uh, Graham Greene, uh, I, I think the one you may want to start with is Travels with My Aunt. And a much less whimsical bit of literary sleuthing, I picked up a copy of the Yamato Dynasty, the secret history of Japan's imperial family. This is one of the works of Sterling Seagrave. We were extolling on this program some months ago. I thought I needed to review some of the characters I had stumbled upon in my reading a few months back, but were now a little bit hazy, as well, you know how it goes down the road. When Shinzo Abe was assassinated last month, there were reports in the press that he had, uh, he had sought to rewrite Japanese history, and this stemmed from the fact that his grandfather was an accused war criminal, and young Shinzo apparently was teased about this in school. Now, you may recall some years back there was a bit of controversy, quite a bit of controversy over the fact that uh, Shinzo Abe seemed to be denying the fact that there were uh, various Japanese-induced massacres in China. The New Yorker noted that uh, Abe made a big effort in 2006 and 2007 to deny that Japan bore any state responsibility for the comfort women in China. He failed in that. This is when he and supporters took out a full-page ad in the Washington Post putting out a denialist position. It was apparently a real moment of shock for him when the U.S. Congress passed a non-binding House resolution asking Japan to atone for its role in creating the comfort women's system in China. Anyway, I got curious about the whole grandfather thing. So I went to Sterling Seagrave for a bit of a review about what happened in Japan post-World War II. This book explains in great detail how it was that uh, occupation forces, first under uh, General MacArthur and then others, decided that the best way to handle the Japanese society in the wake of World War II was apparently to rehabilitate, quote-unquote, the various industrialists and members of the royal family who had been involved in the war effort, blame it all on right-wingers in the military, and put what normally would have been considered Class A war criminals back in charge of the country. Among them, Shinzo Abe's maternal grandpa, Kishi Nobusuke. Seagrave spent some time looking at what he calls three kingmakers in Japan back in the 1950s. Kishi Nobusuke, Tanaka, Tanaka Kakue, and Kanamato Shin. They basically founded the Liberal Democratic Party, which has run Japan ever since. It's a complicated story, and we don't have time to untangle all of it, but I think I would just like to quote the following. During the Great Depression, Kishe Nobusuke's star rose when he showed rich investors how easy it was to gobble up and loot small firms that were going under. He became a wizard in the creation of cartels and trusts. Japan's seizure of Manchuria in 1931 gave him his big chance. He was sent there to investigate industrial possibilities. He made friends with General Tojo, chief of the secret police in Manchuria, and showed Tojo how the army could squeeze private shareholders out of their state-controlled South Manchurian Railroad Company. Fortunately, the president of the company was Kishi's uncle by marriage. Kishi showed his uncle how the SMRC could greatly increase its profits if the Kwangtung army and the Japanese underworld used state terror to bring Manchuria into submission. 
In other words, Kishi promoted the use of terror and extortion to advance the Japanese army's wealth in Manchuria. He made the Kwangtung army so rich that it could act independently of Tokyo and could go off and start the China War on its own. Thanks in large measure to Kishi, General Tojo was such a success that he became the army's chief of staff and eventually Japan's wartime dictator. So, said Sterling Seagrave, we have Kishi to thank for many things. Sterling Seagrave only passed away a few years ago. I'm really sorry that we, we never, we, that we didn't really know about him, reach out to him because he would have made a hell of a guest on this show. Someone who is very much still alive and someone we're going to bring back on this program is Michael Trachtman. We interviewed him in 2007 about his book, The Supreme's Greatest Hits, which looked at 34 influential Supreme Court cases. I spoke with him earlier today about coming back on the show, and we have tentatively scheduled his reappearance for the first week in October when the Supreme Court reconvenes. Believe you me, he's going to have a lot to say about um, the direction the Supreme Court is taking. And since we're quoting from books, let's pull a few lines out of what Trapman had to say in his last edition of the Supreme's Greatest Hits about Citizens United. And before I do that, I want to quote from his Radio Parallax interview. He said in 2007, I'm serious about campaign finance reform. And clearly he was and is. Writing in his second revised and updated edition of the book, which had, in this case, 44 Supreme Court cases that most directly affect your life. Trackman said, there was no consensus on how to limit the influence of big money, but at the time that Citizens United was decided, there was a vibrant and ongoing debate that took as an article of faith the fact that somehow it had to be done. A few pages later, Trackman said, the First Amendment prohibits the government from, quote, abridging the freedom of speech, unquote. But unlike the usual situation, in Citizens United, it was a corporation and not a person asserting a constitutional right of free speech. Do corporations, as opposed to, for example, the people who own them or run them, engage in, quote, speech, unquote? And if a corporation can speak, is the corporation covered by the First Amendment as if it were a person? Justice Anthony Kennedy attacked the issue by concluding that it was not really an issue at all. He stressed the vital importance of protecting the rights of free speech without regard for the source of the speech, individual, corporate, powerful, oppressed, or otherwise. He quoted precedent. The identity of the speaker is not decisive in determining whether speech is protected. Corporations and other associations, like individuals, contribute to the discussion, debate, and dissemination of information and ideas that the First Amendment seeks to foster. Kennedy pointed out that if the provisions of the McCain-Feingold Act were enforced against any speaker who chose to express a preference for a political candidate, quote, speech would be suppressed in the realm where it is necessarily most evident in the public dialogue preceding a real election, unquote. Well, I'd say up till now, it sounds kind of stupid, but not necessarily dangerous. But the next paragraph says, Justice Kennedy also disagreed with the primary rationale for limiting corporate expenditures, that money buys access and promotes corruption. He opined that only evidence of quid pro quo corruption, a direct payment for a specific act in return, would justify curbing corporate expenditures and for that reason, large direct contributions to candidates could be prohibited 
as being justifiably suspicious. But he concluded, there was no evidence that indirect support of a candidate, like distributing a movie excoriating a candidate's opponent, would lead to corruption. For some reason, this seems about as plausible to me as, uh, you know, the guy that tells the fire department when they show up to douse the flames of his burning house that, hey, look, the bed was on fire when I got into it. Just because you make large campaign donations to somebody doesn't mean you, you know, you're entitled to get anything in return or expect anything in return. Right? Anthony Kennedy, by the way, is a product of the McGeorge School of Law in Sacramento. Among his other gifts to the public was being part of the 5-4 majority in Bush v. Gore. I once asked my friend Steve, himself a graduate of McGeorge School of Law, to please sit down and explain Bush v. Gore to me. I said, I'm not a lawyer, but I'm not stupid. The logic should tie together. Please explain to me how Bush v. Gore makes any sense. He declined to take up the challenge. Anyway, final comment said Trackman, apart from the lawyers and legal scholars, Citizens United has spawned a stormer criticism as most people, according to survey data, believe that the decision fosters a system in which elected officials, even if not quid pro quo corrupt, are highly influenced by corporations that provide the money it takes to get elected and stay elected in a political system dominated by expensive television commercials and political consultants. We will look forward to talking about the overturning of Roe v. Wade and Citizens United with Michael C. Trackman come October. I think I'm going to ask him about something that I recalled from my, my memory banks from 30 years ago, actually 34 years ago. I invite you to look back, dear listener, if you were paying attention back in 1988 to the debate between George Herbert Walker Bush and Michael Dukakis. Then Vice President Bush who'd said he wanted to outlaw abortion in most cases, was asked by Ann Groder of the Orlando Sentinel if he would send women and their doctors to prison for defying such a law. Unprepared for the blunt question, the Republican wimp, excuse me, the Republican presidential nominee said he did not know whether he would favor jail terms in those situations, though he refused to rule it out. Bush suggested, once that illegality is established, then we can come to grips with the penalty side. Bush's campaign manager, James Baker, realizing that uh, Poppy Bush was screwing the pooch on this one, then went before the press to clarify his remarks and said, well, actually, in this case, the vice president would look at the woman as being just another victim of abortion. So we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that it, it, it wasn't just Donald Trump and his three appointees to the Supreme Court that managed to get Roe v. Wade overturned. It was the bulk of the Republican Party. And speaking of the Republican Party and, and guests we've had on this program in the past, as we just were, we need to refer you now to Christine Todd Whitman, who spoke with us back in the early aughts about her book, It's My Party Too wherein Whitman was voicing objections to the direction taken by Bush Cheney. The former New Jersey governor took the position that most Republicans were considerably more moderate than Bush and Cheney and advocated for a bit of a battle within the party to regain control. It appears pretty clear that she decisively lost that battle and has clearly given up on reforming the Republican Party from within. In fact, a few days back, Christine Todd Whitman, and the one-time Democratic presidential candidate Andrew Yang joined 
with several dozen other political officials to start a new national political third party, which is to be called Forward. Evidently, they did not feel the need to consult with marketing people before they came up with a name. Mr. Millen actually thinks that the Forward Party is a good name. Well, we'll see. Better than Backward. Actually, I think we saw the actors of the Backward Party on January 6th. But yes, at least they didn't name it the Goofball Party. No, actually, we wish the Forward Party well. It's going to be a centrist party, which is hopefully going to take people who are moderate Republicans and join them with more centrist Democrats. I have a sneaking feeling that it's going to take more Democrats than it is Republicans, which is not what the country needs right now. In case you're forgetting how it was that both Pat Buchanan with the Reform Party and Ralph Nader with the Green Party back in 2000 managed to deny Al Gore the presidency. I guess they need to defend that a little bit. In the state of New Hampshire, which went to Bush, Ralph Nader took three times the difference between Gore and Bush. And you can bet your ass he took most of them out of the Gore category more than the Bush category. If New Hampshire had gone to Gore, Jeb Bush couldn't have made his brother president by stealing Florida. Just a reminder. Anyway, Reuters is reporting that Andrew Yang and Christine Todd Whitman will be the initial co-chairs of the Forward Party, and a launch event will be held in Houston on September 24th. Then party members will hit the road, stopping in two dozen cities to spread their message and their platform. Well, as soon as they develop a platform. It is noted in, in the press that Forward doesn't have any specific policies yet. We might suggest a couple from the Firestein Theater. They might want to consider advocating for the guaranteed annual year, backing one organism, one vote, and maybe follow Will Durst's suggestion to get behind Nickel Beer Night. When they announce their policies, we will do our best to share them with you. And Slate is reporting what we have to consider to be some excellent news. To quote from Justin Peters, writing in Slate, Farewell to OAN, that's One American News, the network for loons and the president they loved. Said Peters, once upon a time there was a cable news network that nobody liked. Nobody except the loons, that is, those very special people who willfully eschewed the logical reasoning and established corpus of knowledge in favor of febrile theories, weird cultural grievances, and other made-up BS. As luck would have it, there were enough loons out there for the network to be aired by many cable providers and to reap millions of dollars in carriage fees year after year. Then, in a shocking development, one of America's foremost loons was elected president. And One America's News Network, the network that nobody liked, found itself having a moment. Notes Peters, it is now July 2022, and OAN's moment is definitely over. On July 31st, the network's carriage deal with Verizon expired and was not renewed. While some OAN network personnel have characterized what happened as cancel culture motivated by a Marxist agenda, rhetoric, says Peters, which in itself sort of shows you why very few companies want to be in business with the network anymore. But the truth is, it was a simple business decision on the part of Verizon and Direct TV. No longer made sense for both of those carriers to spend their good money every year airing a network that nobody watches, is beset by lawsuits, and is a vector for toxic misinformation. And apparently a lot of OAN's success had to do with the fact that uh, small networks, which are aired on, on various providers like Verizon, uh, get a kickback from your fees when you subscribe. 
anyway, it looks like they're on the way out. We do hope that somebody will take the time to drive a stake through their heart to make sure. And balancing off that bit of apparently good news, we have this. The predicted net gain to the Republicans in the upcoming midterm elections appears to be far higher than the seven additional seats the GOP will need to secure a majority. Democrats who currently hold 220 seats can only afford a net loss of two. The predicted gain for the Republicans at the moment, according to a CBS News poll, is 19. The model used in the polling has an error margin of 12 seats, meaning the Republicans are projected to win between 218 and 242 seats. Even on the low end of that range, Republicans will still emerge from the midterms with control of the House of Representatives. The article in the week notes that some Democrats have expressed hope that the Supreme Court decision overturning Roe v. Wade and ending the constitutional right to an abortion could steal some of the GOP's momentum. But it seems as though high inflation, high gas prices, and the normal rhythm of election cycles, wherein during the midterms the party in power generally loses, are handicaps too large for the Democrats to overcome. Well, we hope that pessimistic assessment proves incorrect. Perhaps the efforts of the January 6th committee come September will have a thing or two to say about that. Maybe Merrick Garland will get off his ass and indict the Donald for his criminality. We mentioned on the program a few weeks back about Cassidy Hutchinson referring to Tony Ornato of the Secret Service, describing how Trump tried to basically assault him and drive to the Capitol to join his followers who were ransacking that building. Russ Baker weighed into the subject of Ornato and others' uh, subsequent denial that this took place. And more importantly, the fact that, as Russ Baker states, an apparent violation of agency policy, as many as 10 agents on the security details of Donald Trump and Mike Pence may have sent text messages on or before the Capitol riots, only to delete them or have the agency conveniently lose them when they were requested by Congress. As Stephen Harper mentioned in this program recently, um, Anthony Ornato was a top aide in the Trump White House while still carrying a Secret Service badge. Well, it has now lawyered up. Ornato apparently is still Assistant Director of Training at the Secret Service, responsible for the oversight, administration, policies, and forecasting of required training and professional development for all Secret Service personnel. Yeah, you want a Trump employee in that position, don't you? In case we haven't made you nervous enough, let's close with this from the week. Dateline Palm Beach, Florida. Former President Trump's top allies have spent months refining a plan to purge thousands of civil servants from the federal government if Trump is reelected and replace them with loyalists. This is reported by Axios last week. The strategy, an assault on what Trump supporters call the deep state, reportedly would extend from the EPA to the IRS to the defense, state, and justice departments. The plan depends on an executive order known as Schedule F, which Trump signed two weeks before the 2020 election and President Biden immediately rescinded upon taking office. Trump plans to reimpose Schedule F, which would reclassify as many as 50,000 civil servants with policymaking jobs, stripping them of employment protections. Trump reportedly planned to talk about this in a speech last week, saying, to drain the swamp, we need to fire the swamp, 
but then he decided to cut mention of Schedule F. But we thought it was important to mention, so we just have. We've got quite a few more important things we'd like to mention in the second half of the program, so to hear those, you're going to have to stick around. This is Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett.